This is the best of the BuzzMeter podcast with Howie Kurtz. It's the Media BuzzMeter with Howard Kurtz. All right, all right. I'll talk about Chris Wallace in just a moment. I know that's what you all want to hear about. And I'll tell you about my wild Sunday morning. But, you know, we're just coming off the weekend. I want to kind of ease into it. So one thing I want to talk about is the Beatles. I know you could hear me talk about the Beatles on every single podcast. And I'm not going to rehash what's in the Get Back documentary, except to say articles are still being written about this. Thoughtful, interesting articles, pro and con by critics and music lovers and cultural types. Uh, it is just it is so unusual to have this time capsule glimpse of the Beatles in late 1968 and early 1969 trying to put together this album. In any event, having gotten my fix of that after six or seven hours, uh, I now have Paul McCartney's book, The Lyrics, and it's, you know, it's like the size of two phone books. Um, all the lyrics to every uh, song he's ever written, either solo or with John Lennon. And, you know, uh, his ruminations on that. And I thought at first it would be, and then a lot of nice photographs. I thought at first it would be, uh, well, I was sitting in a pub when I saw this woman and that made me write all my loving or whatever. And there's a little bit of that, a context for the songs and why he wrote certain words and what they mean. And they might be different than what you thought that they meant, for example. Uh, but a lot of it is just kind of slices of autobiography in a way that I find fascinating and pretty candid stuff. Uh, for example, you know, I guess Paul McCartney's 79, I can say whatever the hell he wants. Uh, for example, he says when uh, the Beatles broke up, and it's been widely reported that he was very depressed for a long period of time, for a sizable period of time after that happened, uh, and he was trying to figure out what to do next, and he formed the group Wings. He said he knew that no group that he could be part of would ever be as good as the Beatles. And so he wanted to do something different. And so when he wrote songs for Wings, you know, which at the time a lot of people criticized as being a little too uh, light, a little too bubblegum, pop pop music. Um, and there's something to that. And there also were a number of really good Wings songs that have stood the test of time. But in any event... He talked about how he drafted his wife, Linda, and she wasn't that great on the keyboard, but she had a nice voice. And anyway, he says he deliberately wrote songs for Wings that were not Beatles-like at all because he wanted to do something different and not be seen as competing with the Beatles. And I thought that was pretty candid. There's also a section I read, and I'm just, you know, about uh, 15% through this thing, about the bitter battle he had with John Lennon after the Beatles breakup. Thankfully, they later kind of reconciled when Lennon would write a song blasting him, such as How Do You Sleep at Night? And Paul would respond in kind, sometimes a little less direct. And he said, look, it was really hurtful. Uh, you know, this guy was like my brother. You know, we grew up together as teenagers, wrote songs, you know, when they were just a bunch, a couple of Liverpool lads. And how much that hurt, but he felt it was John being John, and that's the way John did things. And uh, nevertheless, they still managed to talk. Anyway, there's just it's a kind of a treasure trove, and so... Uh, you're looking for a Christmas gift or something that's interesting. Also on the rock music front, and I guess, you know, all these guys are getting to the age now where this is not exactly shocking. Another member of the Monkees has died, Michael Nesmith. And uh, his autobiography, uh, I guess a few years ago, he wrote, who would play what and who would sing and who would write and who would produce the records was of keen interest to me. So I was unprepared for the idea that the four of us would have nothing to do with any of that. So if those of you who are younger than I am probably don't remember, the Monkees were this bogus group. And it was an NBC show. NBC wanted to have a kind of a madcap, zany show about a rock band. So they picked these four musicians who didn't know anything about 
didn't know each other, and um, gave them cover songs and gave them songs that were not written by them, and they would run around and sing them. But at a certain point, and Nesmith was widely regarded as the leader, um, they took control aside. They wanted to write their own songs. And some of the songs that they wrote have actually stood the test of time. Uh, originally, they were, writing, they were performing songs by Neil Diamond and Carol King and other great writers of uh, that era. And by the time they got famous, they were going out on the road and Jimi Hendrix was opening for the Monkees on tour. There's one for people who know this song. I never knew this. The Michael Nesmith wrote and gave away. It was recorded as a hit by Linda Ronstadt. Different Drum, which is a breakup song about, you know, basically it's not you, it's me. Um, anyway, I think it's a tremendous piece of writing. I never knew it came from one of the monkeys. And one more thing here as we ease in. Uh, New York Times the other day had a, a very heavy, a very heavy on graphics piece about Steph Curry of the uh, Golden State Warriors. And his, he's, apparently he's about to break the all-time NBA record for most three-pointers, which, of course, is his signature shot, signature shot uh, throwing it up from downtown. He's a few points away from passing, let's just see here, Ray Allen. Ray Allen has 2,973 three-pointers, and in, within a few games, um, Curry will pass that. Fascinating statistic here. To get a sense of how thoroughly Curry has rewired conventional behavior when it comes to offense, in other words, this changed the nature of the NBA. Consider that 50% of his career shot attempts have been three-pointers. Think about that. One out of every two times he throws the ball up, it's from three-point range. By comparison, other people who did really well once the NBA adopted that rule, 7% of Michael Jordan's shots, 21% of Kobe's shots were three-pointers, 23% of LeBron James's shots have been threes. So I thought that was fascinating. All right. Enough uh, of the hors d'oeuvres. Let's get to the main meal. So I'm sitting there Sunday morning, as I usually am, getting media buzz together, go into the makeup room, and often I bump into Chris Wallace in the makeup room because he his show comes on before me, and we chit-chat. And it so happens I've been booked to be on the panel on Fox News Sunday on January 2nd, you know, holiday weekend. They're calling people off the bench. I've done this show a number of times, but I knew Chris would be on vacation Christmas and New Year's as he usually is. So I said, I'll be on the show. Uh, you won't be there, but I hope you're going someplace good. And he's talked about uh, what he's going to do for vacation. Um, later, a few minutes before 10 o'clock Eastern, he's on the air and I have the TV on in the background. And I got about a five minute heads up. You better watch what he's going to say. And that, of course, as the world now knows, Chris Wallace announcing that yesterday was his last Fox News Sunday and his last day at Fox News after 18 years with the network. So on the one hand, this hit me like a ton of bricks because I have enormous admiration for Chris Wallace. And he's just been a great colleague. And he's been on my show many times. And as I said, I've been on Fox News Sunday as well. Secondly, um, I suddenly had to report this you know, coming up and, you know, it's like 20 minutes before I go back into makeup and record the open of the show. And I'm trying to, uh, you'll appreciate this. Anybody's ever had this happen. So I bang out this little tribute and we have a soundbite from Chris and, you know, I'm trying to craft it, but I'm you know, the clock is ticking and I'm really out of time. Okay. I press the button and the computer swallows it. The program that we use 
somehow decided it didn't like what I wrote and just disappeared it stupidly. Usually I keep a copy on like, you know, Word or Google Docs. Didn't do that. So I had to reconstruct the whole thing from memory while the clock is ticking, then run into the studio, do the open, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I said that, you know, we all just learned this. And um, in his soundbite, he said, 18 years ago, the bosses here at Fox promised me they would never interfere with a guest I booked or a question I asked, and they kept that promise. So it was all very high road and how he was going to miss uh, Fox News Sunday and miss uh, conversations with the audience um, every week. And I've known Chris Wiles for a very long time and have interviewed him you know, a zillion times before I came to Fox. He was at ABC. He was at NBC. People forget he briefly moderated Meet the Press at one point. He was on one of the ABC News magazines. I think it was 2020. It might have been the other one, uh, primetime. Um, and over the years, I just, I've learned a lot from watching him. He is, in my opinion, the most tenacious interviewer in the television business. Might have learned a little something from his dad, Mike Wallace. And uh, he has a great staff, and it's a lot of intense preparation and just persistence, you know, asking the same question three and four times until you either get an answer, get past the talking points, or it's clear to the audience that you're not, that the guest is not going to answer. And it's something that I saw Ted Koppel do many times and someone I knew as well. Um, and, you know, his when he speaks about issues, when he's a guest on other people's shows, I mean, you know, it's a guy who's been around Washington for such a long time that, you know, I think he speaks with a certain authority. And I think he may be the best debate moderator ever. Um, you know, he, that's why he was immediately picked by the Presidential Debate Commission for the 2021. Unfortunately, that, that was the one where Trump decided to filibuster and talk over Biden and Chris and everybody else. But otherwise, he just has does a masterful job. But the thing about him that I think defined him and was such an asset at, to Fox News was that he was as tough on Democrats as he was on Republicans. That he just, in a, in a kind of a polite but persistent way, without giving speeches, without haranguing anybody, without denouncing anybody, he always would thank them for coming on. He could be uh, just, not just aggressive, because that can be kind of a TV thing. He knew his stuff. He knew what the guest might answer. He tried to take that away. Well, isn't this true? And you said this last month or last year. It's the old Tim Russett style. Russett also, who I knew well, the late Tim Russett, was very, very good at that. You know, if you're in the biz, you learn from all these people. And it's such a hyper-polarized environment that for him to be able to do that and to do that with President Trump, who liked some of his interviews with Chris Wallace, who didn't like some of his interviews with Chris Wallace, who uh, came to criticize Chris Wallace on Twitter back when he was on Twitter. Um, I just think that he really did play it down the middle. Now, uh, a lot of the pro-Trump conservatives came to not like Chris Wallace, and they would go online, and they, of course, are on my Twitter feed yesterday saying, no, 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 he was a total lib, he, was, he hated Trump, and this and that. It's just absolutely simply not true. People have strong partisan feelings, want to see those feelings reflected by the people they watch on television. I can tell you, as somebody who also tries to be down the middle, who doesn't particularly like either party, who tries to give an equal hearing to the right and the left, and to different points of view, because it's not always right-left. Sometimes there are disagreements within the conservative movement or within the liberal movement. I mean, yesterday, 
Uh, I talked about Biden uh, and his two-hour call about Ukraine with Vladimir Putin and how the conservative uh, pundits were split. Some were saying, yeah, Biden did the right thing. Others were saying, no, it wasn't tough enough. So it doesn't always come out, you know, in nice, neat little boxes. Um, anyway, so I, I had written this, and then during the show, during each break, I'm talking to the control room, and there are a couple of reports are, po- are popping up, but they're not confirmed about where Wallace might be going next. And so I'm trying to decide on the run, okay, do I report this? Do I not report it? Do I couch it? And then literally five minutes before my final segment, which is where I did the uh, Chris Wallace announcement, um, CNN confirmed that Chris Wallace will be going to the new online streaming service that the network is launching, CNN Plus. doesn't exist right now. Uh, Doing some kind of weekday show or interview show, I guess it remains to be seen. And Chris had said he wanted to do something different. I had a chance to talk to him a little bit afterwards, and the staff surrounded him. And I've got to tell you, um, he kind of exploded like a neutron bomb because he is so, well, I mean, even the makeup people and everything, I mean, just is a class act. Again, you may like Chris Wallace and his style or what you perceive to be his brand of journalism. You may not like Chris Wallace, but I'm telling you, this is a guy who was who everybody enjoyed working with. And it was so closely held. I mean, usually these things leaked out or there are rumors. That didn't happen. That absolutely didn't happen. So even the panel on Fox News Sunday, they didn't know he was going to do this. Uh, they were asked to stick around for an extra five minutes at the end. Usually they get up and leave, and he does the power player of the week. Um, and they were all very surprised. And so everybody was kind of surrounding Chris and milling around, which I did for a few minutes. And then it's like, I had to run back to my desk and write the script. Uh, so it's a real loss for Fox, as I said on the air, no question about it. Uh, I, both as a colleague and as a friend, I wish him well in his new endeavor. It's interesting that he's choosing to do the online thing uh, as a little bit of a change from the, the grind of cable news. Um, and I just give him a tip of the hat. Uh, now, if you agree or disagree, that's your privilege. But until, um, remember, when Donald Trump first ran and that first debate, and when people remember about that first debate, was Megyn Kelly's question about Trump and women. But Chris Wallace was part of that debate team with Brett Baer. And, um, you know, then he was getting a lot of praise because he asked Trump tough questions. So, you know, like liberals loved him for a while because he was asking Trump tough questions when he asked tough questions to Bill Clinton or to Barack Obama uh, or to Joe Biden, maybe not so much. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Moving right along, and I know this story will continue to play out. Um, Kamala Harris, uh, fascinating. Uh, Peggy Noonan has a piece that's gotten a lot of traction in the Wall Street Journal. And she starts out by saying, the Harris is incompetent stories are played out at least for the next few months. Wrong. She wrote this, it was published on Friday. Today, there's a huge lead story in Politico saying Kamala Harris is in trouble. We asked, you know, 10 top political professionals what they would do to help the vice president turn things around. I mentioned last week the Washington Post had a brutally tough piece on her about how hard she is to work for and and all of that. It just seems like everybody in the universe is piling on. And look, objectively speaking, she hasn't had a great year. Uh, she was put in charge of the border, which is sort of, sort of no win. Um, her approval rating in that one poll was down to 28%. So, so Peggy says, look, anything more would be overkill. Well, we're in the overkill because you're dead. In other words, she's saying she's politically dead. Expectations are low. So 
says Peggy, uh, the vice president can use her time of deadness to focus on why she's failing and she needs a reset. Uh, this might be her last chance to correct a bad impression. Now, Peggy says she traces the vice president's decline to when she went to Guatemala and Mexico in June. Um, should have been a highly prepared meeting with the press, but she launched into what Noonan describes as a mindless ramble in which she kept saying we have to find the root causes of illegal immigration. Everybody kind of knows that, not so easy to do. Her supporters grouse that she is criticized because she is a woman of color. Um, okay, Noonan says that. But she doesn't seem strong in public. She seems scattered and unprepared. Uh, and finally, you know, wanting to sort of say, well, here's what she could do, if there's anything she can do. Um, Kamala Harris should decide that she's going to become serious to inform and immerse herself, meet with party thinkers, study her briefing books. Her current strategy, to the extent it exists, appears to rely on her sense of own, her own personal charisma, Delighted laughter, attempts to connect personally, to convey zest. She should speak instead with sincerity and depth. And then, says Noonan, she could help Biden, you know, publicly sell his programs because Biden himself is kind of uneven as a public speaker. Now, it just so happens that in today, that yesterday, actually, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle published an interview with Kamala Harris in which she said, there is nothing about this job that is supposed to be easy. If something is coming to me, it's because it needs to be addressed and because, by definition, it's not going to be easy. If it was easy, it would have been handled before it comes to me. She mentioned this dumb story about why she likes Bluetooth, uh, why she doesn't like Bluetooth headphones, the, the wireless kind, prefers the wired headphones because of security risks. And she's kind of saying, look, how about, uh, oh, she's going to buy a pot on her way to the airport. After a very significant and highly successful bilateral meeting in France on issues that are about national security, on issues that are about climate, on issues that are about everything from what we are doing for, in terms of international norms and rules on everything from cyber to space, come on. She says she's not going to be distracted by these ridiculous headlines. And the reason I kind of like that interview is, is twofold. One is she's fighting back. Two is she sounds like a real person. She sounds a little bit ticked off. She sounds frustrated. That's okay. You know, the thing about Kamala Harris, she's extraordinarily well-spoken, but she sounds often too scripted and too much like a talking point machine. It's a pretty common thing in politics, but, you know, she had been a senator for two years when, when Biden picked her, so she's not somebody who is well-known to the press except in California, and um, she just can come off as a little too slick and glib. And I think it is good for her to come off with a little more honesty, even if she's picking fights with the press or picking fights with other people. And I think Noonan may be onto something that maybe uh, the better she knows these issues, the better she could come across in interviews, and maybe she could do more interviews since Joe Biden doesn't do many. In fact, absolutely embarrassing uh, appearance, not for Biden, on... The Tonight Show, Friday night with Jimmy Fallon. I mean, you don't, you know, it's it's late night. You're not expecting to see Tim Russert there. Jimmy Fallon tries to be sort of apolitical, but, you know, he obviously was so thrilled and so honored that Joe Biden would appear on The Tonight Show. The questions he asked, I actually have a, a video out uh, coming today that I just list the questions, you know. Uh, what was your first reaction when you went into the White House as president? 
do people understand how hard a job president is? Uh, the infrastructure bill has passed. Uh, a lot of people are confused. What exactly is in it? Uh, if you pick up a newspaper of last month, you can answer that. What about the Build Back Better bill? Uh, why are people confused about what's in it? Just you know, these, these blanket invitations for him to recite the talking points. And then about the Kennedy Center honors, which President Biden went to, and I guess Fallon was there, he said, I was so happy you were there. I was, it was amazing that you were there. You are bringing class back to the office. I mean, it was just so sycophantic. Look, I like when politicians do late night, reach a different audience. If he wants to go on Colbert and Kimmel and uh, everything else, fine. But at least, you know, as John Stewart would sometimes do, at least ask a couple of semi-challenging questions. And it's just so telling that Joe Biden, who does very, very few television interviews, of course, he'd be happy to shoot the breeze with Fallon, um, but he should do more, and then he can do all the kinds he wants. All right, so um, over the weekend, this didn't really get as much publicity as certainly the previous launches. Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, of course, um, his Blue Origin company launched another crew into space for one of these, you know, 10 or 11 minutes in, into space. And among, among those on board, uh, I'm sure this got a lot of play on GMA that I hadn't seen, were Michael Strahan, former football player, Good Morning America co-host, and a daughter of Alan Shepard, who was actually considered the most first man in space that was kind of suborbital and later was an astronaut on Apollo 14, and some others. Um, and, of course, you know, as you would expect, Bezos is talking it up. Uh, happy crew this morning in the train, training center. He wrote on Instagram and, you know. But, you know, it's understandable. The, the first one he went on. The second one, William Shatner went on, so there was a whole lot of Captain Kirk stuff. And even somebody who's, you know, a pretty big deal on television, Michael Strahan, it, it just was a lesser story. But the reason he's getting flack, and this continues into today, is that while he's out there, understandably acting as a cheerleader for Blue Origin, he didn't say anything about the horrible and deadly tornadoes that caused so much damage, death, and destruction across the Midwest, including striking an Amazon building. Uh, I don't know if it's a warehouse. And why didn't he address that too? I mean, those are the people who work for his company. Made no mention of it, and I think that was a misstep by Bezos. Hey, there's a story out from the AP. Uh, this is kind of troubling. Special Customs and Border Patrol Unit used sensitive government databases intended to track terrorists. Think about this. So this is a secret, you know, highly classified database solely for the purpose for the customs agency to track down people who have either committed terror or might commit terror acts and used it to investigate as many as 20 journalists based in the U.S., including, this is why it's in the AP, a Pulitzer Prize-winning Associated Press reporter. Yahoo News did a big story on this, found that this unit um, also looked into the records of congressional staffers and perhaps members of Congress. Excuse me, there should be hearings on this. Jeffrey Rambo, an agent who acknowledged running these checks on journalists, this was back in 2017, so it's during the Trump administration, told federal investigators to practice this routine. When a name comes across your desk, you run it through every system you have access to. That's just status quo. That's what everybody does. No, that's not what everybody does because everybody doesn't have access to these super secret databases that are aimed at combating terrorism. So naturally, some in the media are up in arms. Here is Lauren Easton, uh, spokeswoman for the AP. We are deeply concerned about this apparent abuse of power. 
This appears to be an example of journalists being targeted for simply doing their jobs, which is a violation of the First Amendment. And um, I think it's awful. I think it's an abuse of power. I don't know that anything terrible came of it, but what, what are you trying to decide? What are you trying to figure out here? Whether to give interviews to these journalists? You can't do that by looking at their clips or watching them on TV or looking at, uh, you know, you got to use the secret database. Can't everybody just see that that's just wrong? And there's a reason that we have a First Amendment in this country? So um, I think people should be concerned about this, whether they're in the journalism business or not. Uh, you know, the people who are in the investigative agencies of the government, and there obviously have been scandals about this, FBI, CIA, Director of National Intelligence's office, and, of course, customs would fall in that uh, category, and IRS, and this became a big issue uh, during the Obama years. You know, they have a lot of power. They have a lot of ability. Sometimes you have to go to a judge to conduct surveillance, Um to do what we used to call wiretaps, electronic surveillance, to get phone records and find out about journalistic sources, uh, to harass people, really. And they have to have a very good reason. There has to be a criminal investigation. It has, it has to be approved by a special court. And even if it is, you know, the Biden Justice Department has changed that and says we're not going to do that anymore. Where are we even in a leak investigation? I guess that you could debate that if it's a criminal probe. In any event, I think this needs to get a lot more attention. It's not just some, you know, issue only of interest to people who are in the journalism business. Ah, here's an interesting twist. Gavin Newsom is ticked off about the Texas abortion law and the Supreme Court's failure to step in and overturn it or block it or put it on hold or whatever. Uh, you know, this is the law, the very controversial law, where anybody can sue, citizen, anyone from out of state, can sue anybody involved in performing an abortion, uh, facilitating an abortion after six weeks. The doctor, the clinic, you know, the woman sitting at the front desk, whatever. The California governor is also angry about a recent federal court decision about um, the California ban on assault rifles, in which the judge compared the weapons to a Swiss army knife. So, over the weekend, Newsom says the following. If states can now shield their laws from review by the federal courts that compare assault weapons to Swiss Army knives, then California will use that authority to protect people's lives where Texas used it to put women in harm's way. So, what's he talking about? He's talking about gun control. Newsom says he's telling his staff to work with the legislature to come up with a new law that would allow, yes, private citizens to sue gun manufacturers or distributors of assault weapons, as well as ghost gun kits or parts. Uh, the governor saying it's the most efficient way to keep these devastating weapons off our streets. So this is the problem, and this is the inherent hypocrisy. If you're somebody, let's say on the left, who looked at this Texan law and said, oh, this is vigilantism run amok. This is insane, allowing citizens to sue. And the reason it was set up that way is if the, if the state government were intervening, then it would be easy for a higher court to block the state government from doing anything or using taxpayer dollars. But that was the maneuver that the Texas lawmakers and governor used to get around a possible invalidation by a higher court. So if you thought that was terrible, if you said this is, you know, crazy town and this is... Uh, going to allow anybody to just wreak havoc and deprive people of their rights, 
that you should also be critical of this California proposal because it uses the same technique. Now, if you say, well, yeah, but I, I don't like abortion. Uh, I don't like people who take on abortion rights, but you know, getting guns off the streets, that's uh, much more uh, of a great public service, then it's sheer hypocrisy. Then you're saying, sure, we can use a method that I denounce when it is used, when it is utilized to do something I don't like, but we can embrace it when it's used for a cause that I very much do like. Uh, now, I don't know whether this is a serious effort. Is the California legislature actually going to pass this? Is this just some rhetorical point scoring by Gavin Newsom? But we shall find out. Hey, here's a downer. Uh, new study says, according to the site Study Finds, that three out of five Americans feel more tired now than they have ever been in their lives. This is a survey of 2,000 respondents. 59% say spending so much time at home since early 2020 has permanently sapped them of their energy. Here are some of the numbers. 58% feel disjointed and unfocused. Catching a few moments of sleep doesn't appear to help them. Over half in the poll, 55% say no amount of rest can help them feel focused during the day. Now, this is conducted by one poll on behalf of Monster Energy, which, you know, maybe think, well, is this just a survey so that Monster Energy can serve more energy drinks? But if it's a legitimate poll, it does, you know, I have a kind of a gut feeling about it. Uh, one out of two people in this survey blame long work hours or staying inside too much during lockdowns as the reason for their perpetual exhaustion. 46% add to their exhaustion. Uh, they say it's due to too much screen time. 41% blame the lack of routine in their lives as the worst impact of the pandemic. Now, you know, in a way it's counterintuitive because, you know, in the old days when we could go anywhere, do whatever we wanted, nobody was wearing masks, um, people would sometimes take staycations. You know, they'd stay at home and relax rather than getting on a plane and flying off to some distant uh, beach or tourist hotspot. But look, it's one thing to do that for weeks. Another thing to do that, we're coming up on two years in this pandemic. And uh, I've heard a lot of people just complain, the people that I know, friends and so forth, that they're just always feeling tired. Now, you, you got to add on to this. For parents, the strain of having to, during when all the schools were shut down, not only do their jobs from home, for those who are lucky enough to be able to work at home, but essentially to be homeschoolers helping their kids and who had their own uh, mental health issues and exhaustion from looking at a screen six, seven hours a day trying to do remote learning. Uh, most of that is now gone, but, um, you know, who's to say it's not coming back? So uh, I guess when I tell you this, it's just, uh, it's hard for me to struggle through this after talking for so long because it just seems like a lot of people are really tired. I'll tell you one thing, we're all really sick and tired of the pandemic, of the vaccine debate, of Omicron, but here we are. As always, appreciate your listening. If you didn't get a chance to see Media Buzz yesterday, um, the segments are up on the show pages and Facebook and Twitter, my accounts. Um, fascinating conversation with Glenn Greenwald about this notion of, oh, Biden's getting just as bad or worse press than Donald Trump, and the idea that this is somehow an aiding and abetting the undermining of democracy. Uh, he had a very interesting take on it. I uh, offered some thoughts as well. We'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzBeater. 
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.